Please turn in your Bibles. John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 11 today. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So this is after last week, you know, he called his disciples. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Most likely family. Uh, They're very close. Because you're invited to the wedding, you got to be a special guy, I guess. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is a big deal, just so you know. Um, back in the day, if you ran out of supplies, if you ran out of wine, you ran out of food at a wedding, this was almost symbolic foreshadowing of your marriage. So they would say, if you're running out of wine, you're running out of abundance, you're running out of uh, your marriage isn't going to end very well. So you could actually get sued by um, the family could actually sue if you run out of supplies. And so since Mary was in charge of this, she said, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And now I know with our kind of uh, context, we look at that and it sounds insulting, right? Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? That's not how it's said. Actually, this term woman is the term ma'am. So Jesus is addressing Mary with respect. Um, But at the same time, he's not calling her mother. He's not using this endearing term. Because Mary was presuming on her relationship with Jesus. And that was the problem. Mary went up to Jesus, which was the right thing to do. I mean, when you have a need, go to Jesus, of course. But she was presuming, because he's my son, perhaps he's going to do something for me. And Jesus makes that clear distinction. Listen, you are not just my mother. You're, you're just a woman to me because I'm Lord. And so I think in, in the same way, many of us Christians will presume on our relationship with God. And we'll ask God things and we'll be like, well, of course I read my Bible today. So of course God's going to listen to me. Of course I've been to church. I did my thing. And we'll presume on our relationship treating God kind of like a genie. But he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, the hour of great wine, we'll talk about that in a second, has not come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there are set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out, and now take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made, made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior... You have kept the good wine until now. So he's not saying that when people are drunk, you put out bad wine because you can't taste the difference. In fact, wine back in the day was less alcohol content than our current beer. So it was very different. It was very watered down. And what he's saying is you put out the best stuff first and then the lesser and lesser things. Not necessarily that you have to be inebriated. Um, Verse 11, the beginning of signs. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. First of all miracles, Jesus turning water into wine. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we know that there's so much in here. And we don't want to miss 
one jot or tittle of it. We pray, Lord, that you speak to us straight from your heart. Help us to, to hone in, to concentrate, to hear what it is that you want to say to your church. So here we are, Lord. We're at your mercy. So speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. It's really funny. I was, uh, it's, it's funny because we always talk about the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Christians have joy that the world can't take away. But at the same time, it seems like things take away our joy all the time. You know, I, in preparing for this message, um, I've, I thought I was all ready and stuff, but uh, I came here and I left my notes at home. <laughs> so I was like a little frustrated because I couldn't leave to go get my notes, but I found my notes from three days ago that aren't completely finished, but it's something, I guess. But it's so funny, like what can take away our joy? in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a moment of frustration, you catch yourself and you're like, one moment you're like so happy and the next moment it's bam. You know, you, you feel like your, your boat is rocked. So what does that mean for us Christians? What does that mean? And at the same time, if you look at the Bible, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly in John 10, 10. I think it's so significant to us that the very first sign, the very first miracle Jesus does in his entire ministry is turning water into wine. Why? Because wine is a symbol of abundance, like we already said. Jesus didn't just come to the earth so that you'd be miserable. You sing these emo songs and you cry all the time when you come to church and feel really bad and feel really guilty and, oh, I gotta be busy about God's work, gotta be stressed out, I gotta make sure that I'm really important. God wants you to have joy. God wants you, I mean, Christians really should be the most joyful people on the planet. Not saying that you should always be happy because happiness doesn't always come with joy. The difference is when you're, you're, on a, you're in a boat and you're, you know, the ship is, is tossing its waves on, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of disciples, okay? So I, I heard last week a bad illustration of this, but this Hopefully we'll clear it up. Disciples are on the boat, you remember, and Jesus was sleeping. And the whole time, the disciples are uh, freaking out, like, what are we going to do? The storm's going to kill us. And Jesus is just sleeping there. And I'm not saying that disciples are supposed to just be like, well, no, it's good. We have Jesus on the boat and just not freak out. It's okay to freak out. The question is, what do you do when you freak out? Who do you go to? In the exact same way, Mary ran out of wine. And she knew to go to the source. So Christians, it's, I mean, in this world, you're going to have tribulations. In this world, you're going to have times where you're just depressed when you're down. And there'll be circumstances that rock your world. But the question is, what do you do when that boat is rocked? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 that the hope that we have in Jesus is an anchor for our soul. It keeps that boat from sinking. It keeps us from moving. In the same way, when you feel like you're running out, you don't have to worry about being this guy that's just, you know, I'm happy one day, I'm, ha I'm not happy the next, or I'm stressed out today, what am I going to do? You can have this underlying joy like Paul did, right? Paul said, um, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy, Acts 20, 24. There's something he saw that I think a lot of us didn't. 
Because he was saying, I, you know, I take joy in my tribulations, my persecutions. The times that I got whipped, the times that I got beaten and stoned, I take joy in that. Why? Because he knew there was a place to get filled. And we as Christians can do the exact same thing. You feel like you're running out? You feel like you're running dry? Go to the source of all joy. John chapter 15 verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Whenever you seek pleasure in the world, ladies and gentlemen, it will always leave you empty. And that's the problem too. It's like we're Christians, we're living in this world and we seek pleasure in this world and we end up disappointed when it doesn't pan out. But if you run to Jesus, you will never be disappointed. God's source will never run dry. But here's the problem. In verse 3, Mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And I think she was very concerned. And what I love about this is that it doesn't matter how small or how big your concern is. God wants to hear what you're concerned about. To us, we're like, wine, no big deal, right? But to Jesus, he paid attention to this concern. Maybe you have a small concern. Maybe you've lost your car keys. Maybe you lost your notes at home or something. I remember being little, and when I lost my toys, I would pray. It was the first evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Like, I think it's in the other room. I guess he didn't think. I guess he knows. But, yes, and I'd, I'd find my toys. Or maybe it's a big concern. Maybe you're running out of physical resources. You're running out of money. You're running out of, uh, you know, you don't have a job anymore. Maybe you don't have uh, energy. God can supply all of our needs, even the littlest of all needs. Maybe you're running out of spiritual resources. You feel like, I just don't feel the Holy Spirit moving in me anymore. And And he did. And I saw that evidence before, but maybe you don't feel as joyful as you used to be And you're wondering what had happened. But God is the source. And all you have to do is is come to him. Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus illustrated how how the Father cares about every one of our concerns. In verse 22, Jesus said, This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. NLT, just so you know. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? And in verse 29, he says, And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything that you need. You see, God knows that you need things. He's not going to be like, really, you need to eat? Really, you need money? What is all this? No, he knows that you need things. In fact, God knows what you need more than than what you know. God knows more about your needs than you do. Maybe you're, uh, if you've ever been sick, and I've, I've hoped that you've been sick at least once, or maybe you're immortal or something. But if you've ever been sick, you know, when the symptoms come up, you don't know exactly what's wrong, but you know something is wrong. And so what do you do? You go to a doctor because the doctor can tell you what's wrong with you. If your stomach hurts, you don't really even know what's, what's wrong with you. You go to the doctor and he'll tell you exactly what's wrong with you. And in the same way, God knows all of our needs intimately and specifically. 
And so Mary did the right thing in bringing her concern to Jesus. Basically saying, I don't know what you're going to do. I know you'll do something. This was before any other miracle. So that debunks all the apocrypha, you know, and all the, the legends of Jesus killing grasshoppers with his like magic powers, you know, as he's little. That didn't happen. This is the very first sign, very first miracle. And so Mary in faith relied upon Jesus saying, I don't know what you're going to do. I know you can do something. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do you have a need? God is able to fill it. Back when I used to, to act, um, you'd have uh, a playwright who would write the script and all those things, and then you'd have a director who has parts that have to be filled. He would have needs for a lead role, for background actors, all these different roles. And so what he saw as a need, an actor like myself would see as an opportunity. So I will see that need there and say, this is a chance for me to show my acting prowess. You know, a chance for me to display my talents. And so if you think about that and take away the cockiness out of it, when you have a need, God sees it as an opportunity. In other words, and this is the first point for tonight, our deficiencies are opportunities to see God's sufficiency. Our deficiencies are opportunities to see God's sufficiency. In other words, our needs are chances for God to demonstrate his power in our life. It's a chance for God to say, hey, I'm strong. And you're like, well, I'm weak. And I'm like, well, there you go. I can solve that. Man, I'm really sad. I'm really down today. You know what? I am true joy. I am life itself. I've come to give you life in that more abundantly. Whatever your need is, God can fill it. If you think about the Bible, there's a lot of predicaments. Moses, he was going, you know, leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And, oh no, here's a Red Sea. Now here's a predicament. How do you get over the Red Sea? And what they saw as a problem, God saw as an opportunity to show his power and to part the Red Sea. You also have the feeding of the 5,000. Predicament. 5,000 people are really hungry. What do we do? Here's a need. But God saw it as an opportunity to show his power. In my own life, I've known before I took over junior high ministry, um, I saw it as a need. Oh man, there's no way I can do any of these things. I can't lead a junior high group. I can't take a bunch of kids to a different country. I'm not responsible. I can't teach. Those were all the disqualifications, but my disqualifications were actually qualifications that God had so that he could demonstrate his power in my life. What we see as predicaments, God sees as opportunities. And that's why we have to go to the person who can supply all of our needs. If you have a need for food, you go to the grocery store. If you have a need for Christmas presents, you go to the mall. If you have a need for a filling of the Holy Spirit, go to Jesus himself. If you have a need for joy, if you have a need and you feel spiritually dry, you don't know what to do, it makes most sense to go to the word of God, right? Jeremiah said, I saw your word, I ate it, and it was to me joy. You see, I think a lot of us make ourselves crazy when we're in these spiritually dry times, in the wilderness, and we don't know what we're doing and where we're going. And all we really have to do is just meditate on his word, be diligent, and do what he says. 
So are you trying to solve a problem that only Jesus can fix? A lot of us um, don't want to take our concerns to God. And we're like, I think I can solve this on my own. And, and maybe you try to, you think about your parents. You strategically ask one parent over another because you think you'll get it from one over the other. But you see, Jesus isn't like that. God's not going to be like, really? Again, you're going to ask me for joy again? Really? He's not going to do that. Why? Because James says, you do not have because you do not ask. How many of us have missed out on what God has for us just because we haven't even asked him? The hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Our deficiencies are opportunities to see God's sufficiency. Here's the second point. Do your part and let God do his. Do your part and let God do his. So in verse 5, Mary says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. It was the right response to this mild rebuke that Jesus gave to Mary. Basically displaying that Jesus was greater and submitted to him. Now, when Jesus asked them to fill the water pots with water, it doesn't really make any sense, right? They didn't know what he was going to do. He, oh, we're gonna, we need wine and we're going to fill these water pots with water. And that, since this was before the miracles, it's not like they knew that he was going to do something miraculous. And not only that, but actually what happened is they filled the water pots with water. So these water pots were made for ceremonial cleansing of the hands. So, you, you know, according to the law, you had to wash your hands before you did certain things. So they would wash them in these water pots. But he said, fill them up and then go to a well and draw some water into them while it's already filled. So now they're like, well, this is just dumb. We already filled the pots that aren't even meant for drinking out of. And you want to, you know, we're washing our hands. It's like going to the toilet and like washing your hands and then drinking out of it. Sorry to gross you out. And then you go over here and then take well, uh, well water and put that in and then bring it to the master of the feast. Can you imagine bringing it to the master of the feast and be like, here's your water. And you're like, why are you, are you telling me to wash my hands? What are you doing right now? It would have been really embarrassing if they had not believed and if, if God did not pull through. And at times, God will call us to do things that seem ridiculous. At times, God will call us to take a step of faith to see his power. Joshua, if you remember, he was told to march around Jericho. Didn't make much sense. How do you conquer a city? Hey, why don't you march around a city seven times and yell really loud? That'll work really well. How about Moses? When the people of Israel were stricken with this illness, they were told to look upon a bronze serpent, a serpent on this pole, and they will be healed. Sounds pretty ridiculous. So you want me to take a snake, wrap it around the stick, and then put it in the ground, and you tell people to look at it, and they'll be healed. Exactly. Sounds ridiculous, but it's a command of the Lord. Um, there's Pastor Lloyd's grandson, um, cutest little kid. He was drinking water out of the water fountain uh, a while ago. I went up to him and I told him, you know, if you drink water out of that water fountain, you're going to speak in Spanish. And he's like, no. I'm like, that's a Spanish word. You said no. <laughs> so then he's like drinking it really slowly. He's like, you know, he's like freaking out and he's like, nothing's happening. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're speaking in Spanish right now. I don't understand what you're saying. And so, 
I know, it's probably me, and I probably shouldn't lie to kids. Don't tell Pastor Lloyd I said that. Or Mike Panarillo. But I think in some ways, God wants us to have this childlike faith where you just simply believe what God says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Doesn't mean you believe ridiculous things. It means that you obey ridiculous commands if it's, if it's commanded by a God who works out of the most strange of, of circumstances. Some of you, um, how many of you, by show of hands, start your car for your parents? Like when they, they want you to drive somewhere, it's really cold out. They're like, start the car for me, I don't want to go outside. Okay. So you guys know. You're starting the car and your parents are driving. It seems like what you're doing is useless, but in the same way, God commands us to start the work so that he can finish it. Don't worry about the results. Focus on your obedience. Don't focus on the fact that you don't have a job or I don't know what God wants me to be. Focus on obeying what God has called you to do. Whatever he says, do that. Now that doesn't mean that you just go up to people and do weird things and try to conjure up this, this spiritual moving. And in fact, I think that can be harmful sometimes when people try to like stir up gifts and stir up the workings of the spirit. It only happens by the command of God. So you can't just go up and like, there have been some weird movements in the past where people said like, um, in Toronto, there was this one charismatic movement where people were, instead of just speaking in tongues, they decided to make animal noises. So people would start oinking and mooing. I'm not joking. You can, you can Wikipedia it. And I didn't edit the article just to like lie to you guys. It's for real. And so some people do these things thinking they can conjure up a working of the spirit, but moos don't do that. I'm a farmer. I would know. <laughs> the key isn't doing weird things in the name of Jesus. It's being obedient to his voice, even if it doesn't seem to make much human sense. Taking God's commands literally. And sometimes what we do is we'll look at the command of the Bible and we'll just be like, well, that's nice. I don't know if I want to do that. Like when Jesus told the rich man, go and sell all that you have. The rich man didn't say, well, when he said that, he, he didn't mean everything. He meant like detach myself emotionally from those things and I'll be set. He knew and went away sorrowful because he knew that that was a literal command. And so when God calls us to do things, and when you hear things preached about, a lot of us will rationalize, like, when, when he said that to me, it's not like he wants me to literally obey that. I'm not really supposed to stop cursing. I'm not really supposed to change my character. He just, he wants me to just think about it. It's like a little boy that hears from his dad, go to bed, son. Now, when my dad says go to bed, he means just, like, work myself up and just, like, dance around a little bit so I feel more tired. But he doesn't want me to go to bed. That would just be silly. No, the Bible commands us and we are to obey it, every single word of it. Galatians 6, verses 8 through 9 says, He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. A lot of us are really worried about the fruit of what we're doing. And you ask, what is this amounting to? You ever read your Bible and you're like, what is the point of reading my Bible? What is the point of praying? And because you don't see the fruit, you're kind of worried. Does this even amount to anything? Don't worry about the results. Worry about your obedience, your part. God has called you to be obedient and to obey his word and he'll deal with the results. And now listen, just because 
you have good results doesn't mean that you're doing the right thing. Just because you have bad results doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. We could be preaching the word of God here and no one gets saved and people reject it and we still might be obeying the word of God. Just like Jeremiah was told and called to preach to a rebellious generation that would not hear him. That's what he's called the weeping prophet. But did he do what he was told to do? Yes. And when he tried to stop, remember, in, in Jeremiah, it talks about how he's like, well, I was so frustrated because every, every time I preach the, the gospel or I talk about God, I get, you know, beaten, people laugh at me, people make fun of me, and I get hurt, I get thrown in prison. I, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And he says, your word was burning in my heart like a fire, and I was weary of holding it back. So how many of us are going to be so obedient to the Lord that regardless of whether you see any fruit or not, you know that the Lord is going to bless it. It's seeing far off into heaven, the rewards that aren't here on this earth. You know, we could be talking about revival and revival really isn't up to us. We can set the stage, we can have our own hearts on fire, but what happens in other people's hearts is up to them and it's up to the Lord working in them and wooing them. But at the same time, he did say in Matthew chapter 9, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm just saying that like as an if statement. I'm not saying that's really the case because I, I really do believe that God wants to do something amazing in each and every one of us. I think that God is stirring up a revival. I think people will respond. The question is not on what you think is fruit, not on what you think is good results, but what God thinks is good obedience. And doing your part, and God will do his. Third point, God uses what you have. God uses what you have. We see that in verse 6. There were six water pots of stone set there. He didn't say, go out, get in your Jeep, and start driving. I want you to go get the best jugs of wine that you can find and bring it back and show them that I'm Jesus and I'm cool and I get good wine. No, don't do that. He says to use what you have, to use what was there. Now you might be saying, but I don't have anything. Well, that's nice for some people. Obviously they have musical gifts. Some of them can sing really well. Some of them can play instruments and some of them can teach and whatever. I don't have anything. No spiritual gifting, no talents. But you know, in the Bible, God called a lot of people that didn't feel like they were qualified. Gideon, Moses, and they have all these excuses. When they saw their lack, when they saw all the things that they didn't have, they, they began to fear. And they would say things like, Gideon said, Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am least in the father's house. So he's saying, like, I'm, I'm the scrawniest, I'm the weakest, and you're calling me mighty man of valor? Really? Moses says, I am slow of speech. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? What shall I say to them? Where we see our weakness, God wants to show his strength. And I think that's so true in, in my life. The more and more that I see my, my own weaknesses, I know that God has been working and using me and molding me into the person that he wants me to be. Don't think about what you don't have. Think about what you do have. What has God given to you? God has given to each and every one of you a gift. And he wants you to use that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, We have this light shining in our hearts, and we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. I think the very fact that, like, I don't know if 
many of you know this, but like I'm pretty terrified when I do, do announcements like last year. I used to shake. I used to pray like, Lord, please. I'd memorize them. Like I would try so hard so I wouldn't mess up. And I'd still go up there and like so nervous and like take a deep breath. Like, <gasps> okay, I'm good. And go up there and present it like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, nice to see you tonight. And I never said that actually, but I'll put on the performance and people say, wow, he's really good. He's good at speaking. But deep down inside, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to die. And it's in those times of weakness that God demonstrates his power. And I've known that God is doing something because there's no way I could do that on my own strength. I mean, I'm the kid when I'm little, I'm hiding from my mom who has medicine under a laundry basket because I'm so scared of getting medicine. That was me. So you're taking this little boy and you're putting him in front of a lot of people that you grew up around. And that's how I view my life. I don't know how other people view it, but that's how I view it. But Andrew Murray has this great quote. He says, your Christian life is to be a continuous proof that God works impossibilities. Your whole life is to be a miracle, a demonstration. Like we shouldn't go to church and look at people and be like, wow, of course God's moving here. Look how cool that guy is. I mean, look how awesome this church is. He got all this cool eyes and stuff. No, people should come to this church and be like, how is this functioning? Really, like you have that, that old guy and this young guy and this punk. And really, we should go to the church and quite have a lot of questions. And realize that it's only God working. Our deficiencies are opportunities to see God's sufficiency. In the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 18, um, verse 6, the Lord says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. When a potter is making whatever it is, pottery, I guess, he uses the same clay. When he starts over, he'll put water on it. You know, a lot of you have seen the potter's field thing that comes here. He'll mold the, mold the same clay. He doesn't get other clay. He uses the same clay to make it into what he wants it. Fourth point. If you share in the work, you will share in the blessing. You share in the work, you will share in the blessing. What I love about this is that Jesus used the people there. Jesus very easily could have just uh, commanded the water to become wine, and there it was. Jesus could have done some crazy miracle and lightning bolts come down and whatever. Instead, Jesus uses the servants so that they would have an opportunity to share in the work and also share in the blessing. I kind of think of it as if you have a coach who's been uh, helping out an athlete and training the athlete so the person's prepared for their race or whatever it is, um, puts them on a certain diet, does all these things, is struggling with them, is suffering with them. When the, the, the athlete actually wins the race, they share in the blessing as well. And you see the coach so joyful because they were with them in the suffering, in the diligence. In the same way, by being part of what God is doing, we can rejoice all the more when we, when we see the labor and the blessing. When you're at the prayer meetings, when you keep a journal, if you, ha- if you don't keep a journal, I really encourage you to do that because for the past three years I've done it and I'll write down these things like prayer requests and I'll look at them in a year. I'm like, oh my gosh, I never realized that that prayer would be answered. By being diligent to do the small things, you're able to share in the blessing that God has for us. By praying for your unsaved family members and friends. I've prayed for the same friend for seven years and eventually he comes to know Jesus. And then it's like the weight is taken off your shoulders. All those years of praying for the exact same person every single night, 
God finally answered the prayer. And then you share in the joy. But if he just came to know Jesus, he'd be like, oh, wow, that's cool. That was random. But when you've been suffering with the Lord for that person, you've been weeping and, and laboring, then you get to share in the blessing as well. When you go out evangelizing, you're not just watching other people do it, but you're a part of it yourself. When you're part of that work, you get to share in that blessing, knowing that God is good, that God always supplies everything that we need. Psalm 81 verse 10 says, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it, says the Lord. Finally, last point, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So Mary says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Ma'am, what, do you, what does that have to do with me? What am I to do with that concern? My hour has not yet come. In reference to the hour of great wine, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 12, there's prophesied in other passages as well. Uh, Therefore they shall come and sing the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their, their souls shall be a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. This hour of great wine has not yet come. In other words, heaven has not come. And so this was in reference to a prophecy when Jesus said this to her. And that's typical of Jesus. He always pulls out more meaning than what you intend. And so when people are, uh, the disciples are going to Jesus and like, are you hungry? You need food? And Jesus is like, I have food that you don't even know about. And they're like, someone been feeding Jesus while we weren't looking? Like, what is he talking about? It's in the Bible. And so Jesus seeing Mary talk about wine, he alludes to the day when heaven will come, when great abundance, great joy will be coming. You might be thinking, I'm a Christian. Why is it that I still suffer? Why do I go through, through these dry times? Why am I still sad? Why do we have these persecutions? Why do I still have fears? That's because heaven has not yet come. The best is yet to come. And so Jesus will do these cool things here and there. You'll see these evidences of God working in your life. God will come to bring you joy in the moment, but it's not the end of it. It's just a, a preview. Just like when you go to the movies and you watch a preview, it's a, the, the, the movie that's going to come out. It's the best is yet to come. You don't have to worry about the moment. You don't have to worry about what this means for your life because one day it's all going to end. And Jesus is going to come back and every tear will be wiped away, every sorrow. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We can always enter God's peace here on this earth. We don't have to, to walk around miserable. We don't have to walk around um, worried. But we know exactly where to go when the boat's being rocked. We know who the anchor of our soul is. In conclusion, do you believe that the best is yet to come? You see, in verse 11... The, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not that they like didn't believe in him before, but this added to their belief. And so when you see evidence of, of God working in your life, you have a strengthening, a, a fortitude to your belief in him. And the more that you trust in him, the more that you know in faith and in hope that the best is yet to come. 
John chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus says, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take away from you. Later on in, the, in that passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 13 and 14, I'll just read it with, for you real quick. But it's, it's cool to see that right after it talks about wine that is to come, the, the era of great wine, of abundance, it says, the young men and the old will rejoice and I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Done with those notes. See, here's the real deal. Do you find yourself lacking in joy? This is the Christmas season, isn't it? Joy to the world, song that we sing. Realize that Jesus didn't just come that you could be forgiven of sins, which is, of course, why he came, right? But he also came so that we could have joy. And part of that is being released of sin. It's repenting of your sin. As long as you're falling after your sin, you're going to be walking in misery because those things aren't going to fulfill you. They're only going to leave you feeling empty. But when you come to that point, when you find yourself with nowhere else to go, know that Jesus is the one who supplies every one of your needs. And he wants to show himself strong on your behalf.